is going on, ladies and gentlemen? I am your host, Tyler Fowler, and with me is my co-host, Mr. David Russell himself. David, how are you doing tonight? This is the Faith Unaltered launch, bro. I'm super excited to be here. This is our first episode, brother. How are you doing tonight, man? What are you feeling like? How am I doing, man? I am excited, man. This is awesome, man. This is the first time we have, like, done, like, an event together, man. This is this is, is. epic, dude. I mean, we've go got bigger, a go lineup, home. man. Right, man. I mean, we got a lineup tomorrow, man. Um, yeah, man. I, it's just, and it's free. <laughs> I mean, how awesome exactly. is that, man? Like, you see these apologetic conferences and stuff like this, and you actually got to go, go pay money for them, you know, a lot of the time because you got to pay for guest speaker fees and this and that but we were able to pull some stuff together to give to our audience for free man so man i really right. hope people uh tune in tomorrow man and look at all the great content we have uh coming coming their way man i mean it's it's gonna be amazing bro absolutely so that's YouTube, how I'm, doing, man. I'm excited check it out on youtube check it out on facebook we got tiktok events going on i think what david tiktok is from three to four we're both going to be kind of answering questions q a about christianity or really about whatever y'all want to talk about and check this out y'all so tonight we have got again a plethora of guests the guests that are actually going to be on tomorrow night do it we've got live shows we've got uh interviews with dr bill mounts we got interview with dr paul anderson that david and i pre-recorded and so yeah we've got something for the whole the whole family really everything that y'all can be into being a christian we have for you tomorrow starting at what 11 a.m del glover is going to be doing the evil god uh challenge but yeah go ahead david yeah man you know uh del glover is a good friend of mine from canada and yes, he is a master's, you know, he just got his master's. So I'm, I'm so excited to hear his evil God challenge. So let's bring him yeah. on right now and let him kind of introduce himself, introduce his ministry, because he's got this phenomenal ministry called Real Seekers. And yeah. he puts these incredible videos together. I don't know if you guys ever like cosmological arguments, but you can listen to his seven part series. He needs to playlist them a little better though. <laughs> and, put, and put them on there and you could just listen to them straight through and like yeah. he covers every aspect of it almost and, and it's just right like on. oh my gosh this is great stuff so dale uh welcome on the show bro uh tell us who you are and, and what you're about yeah awesome intro so yeah thank you so much for for the kind words and for inviting me on um so yeah as as david mentioned i'm the host of a, a podcast called real seekers um, that I started up after I originally started in um, a podcast called Skeptics and Seekers. So that was kind of like an atheist and Christian interacting week after week on various issues. And after I left that, I turned that into real seeker ministries. So that's where I kind of sometimes I'll bring on special guests like Dr. Gary Habermas or Mike Lacona. Um, or I'm famous for my Shroud Wars debates where I bring on Shroud experts to debate the shroud, the evidence for the Shroud of Turin. I'm also do my solo series that David mentioned. So, you know, the cosmological argument, um, I'm planning next time I'm going to do the hiddenness of God argument for atheism, stuff like that. So yeah, that's who I am. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And Dale, right on, brother. You know, I mean, it, it's so awesome, man, like that you have that ministry there and it's, you know, tell us how you got involved with uh, skeptics and seekers and then decided to say, Hey, let, let's, let's get into a teaching series. Let's, let's bring on experts in the field 
And, you know, I mean, guys, if it wasn't for Dale, I wouldn't have the con- some of the connections I have today. Like, I have connections with Gary Habermas now and and so forth, and it was through Dale, you know? So, you know, it's just really cool to, to be able to make friends like this. And So, Dale, why don't you just tell us a little bit about, like, your journey from, you know, because I, I know Skeptics and Se- Seekers started kind of in a response to the show Unbelievable over in uh, Great Britain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so in terms of my journey, so I kind of started out, I grew up as a Christian, uh, I think like yourself, um, again, whether I was, uh, always perfectly living up to the ideals or not, uh, didn't always, uh, you know, live up to the ideals there, but eventually around 12 years ago, I, I kind of lost my faith. I grew doubts. Um, and I, I kind of left, left the faith and that sort of thing. So I went on kind of a journey from there where I was, really searching for the evidence that's where i became acquainted with the unbelievable show and that sort of thing i was a huge fan of that listening to the debates and and the evidence on both sides of that um so that was a long journey and and throughout that journey i i was lucky enough to meet people like gary habermas or tony costa and, and these guys help help me out really to answer all my questions and and engage with me one-on-one and then eventually in 2018 um i finally got to the point where after assessing the positive and negative evidences, uh, I came out, this is going to sound weird, but I came out to 53.14% probability that Christianity is true. And I committed to Christ uh, at that moment. Um, and I, it was at that time that David Johnson, who was also on the Unbelievable Boards, reached out and said, hey, why don't we start a podcast where we engage? He's the atheist, you're the Christian. And we went over those uh, various topics and stuff like that. Yeah, so Dale, like, tell us a little bit about uh, this probability thing. So, like, you came out at 53%. Where are you at now? Um, so I haven't done it officially, but it it would be somewhere in the 70s. Right on. Uh, all right. Yeah. Now, I got a question for you, brother. Yeah, I got a question. So you're going to be talking about the Evil God Challenge tomorrow. Can you kind of go into detail? What exactly is the Evil God Challenge? Yeah, sure. So, so the Evil God Challenge, there are different versions of it, but it's it's essentially uh, an argument of, look, you have all these various arguments for why you believe in God. The cosmological argument, the ontological argument. Um, you also have these arguments uh, against the existence of God from the problem of evil and this kind of thing. And essentially they'll say, well, there's unfortunately all of these arguments, even if we grant them, it doesn't really prove that God is good. Um, it could equally prove that God is evil. So, you know, the atheist will say, you, Mr. Theist, why do you believe God is good? What's your justification for that? Um, and that's, in a nutshell, what the evil God challenge is. You have to provide certain reasons to say that they're not symmetrical. A good God is more probable on the evidence compared to an evil God. Gotcha, gotcha. So, basically, it, it, let, me, let me ask you this. How... Whenever you use that argument practically to, to an atheist, what is their normal response to it? Uh, so, so when I bring that up to an atheist, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. You're just having a practical conversation with you know an atheist on the street or, or wherever, just conversation with a friend, and, and you use the argument. Like, are you engaged with the argument? How does that look practically? Um, like, do, do, does the atheist usually re- – are they receptive of it or – is it kind of one of those things? Yeah, yeah, that's just semantics. You know how arguments go. 
I think it I think it just comes up to like yeah it's just semantics type deal like you can point out various asymmetries as I'll be doing tomorrow um, and they'll just say yeah but this is all just kind of like philosophical argumentation uh, in real life you don't have any real evidence to that can demonstrate a good God exists over an evil God or something so right yeah the naturalism you. Now, now you start at 11 o'clock right that's 11 o'clock Eastern yep Okay, so are you going to be taking audience Q and A as well? Uh, yeah. If, if I've hopefully I've scheduled time for for some Q and A and stuff. So. Right on, man. Right yeah, Dale's kind of long winded, so no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Dale have that type of relationship, guys. If you're on your, I was gonna say he got it from you. Guys, it, yeah, yeah, right. He definitely did. Uh, <laughs> we we both had the debate Chris date together. That's how I met him. So. Mm. Oh yeah, on the topic of hell. Uh, what was that debate on? We had on Chris hell. date on. Hell. Really? On hell, yeah. But yeah, that it was, was interesting. Uh, Dale did most of the talking there because I was supposed to play the seeker, you know. So. I, I was yeah. just asking questions and I agreed with Dale and then like we built this great friendship out of that man and it's just been a blessing ever since so guys if you're right. also guys if you're I, I want to remind the audience too if you're on your way home or, or you get home and, and you still want to listen to us we're going to have an after party after this Dale are you going to be joining us on the after party uh I I guess so it's at what time 8 30 yeah 8 30 and yeah. it's an open mic so we're going to be jumping on YouTube to continue just discussions about theology, just fun stuff, unscripted, uh, open mic, ask your questions. You can ask questions about the show tomorrow and what you can expect, anything. So cool, with yeah. that, uh, Dale, you know, uh, thanks for coming by and just explaining yeah, to us everything uh, about yourself and where you got started and, and stuff like that, man. Again, we, we love you. Uh, we, we really love to have you as part of the team, you know, just as we do all these guys that are coming on tonight that uh, help us build this, this, this show. So awesome yeah i, I yeah, agree with you. thank you no problem thank you guys yep all right man so uh, tr try to get there now <laughs> yeah we're excited i'll, I'll about be that. there yeah absolutely See. Hello and welcome to Faith Unaltered. I am your what host, up? David Russell, and I'm here with my co-host, Tyler Fowler. And this is the after party event. We just got through boop, boop. our first hour of this launch event with the radio station at KEQQ. Tyler, what is up, brother? Not much, man. That was a fun episode. We dived into what we were going to be talking about all day tomorrow. We've got an all-day event planned starting at 11 o'clock all the way till 7.30 where we peak with a live debate. So join that tomorrow. Right. Yeah, yeah, I am too, man. And you know what? Tonight is the after party. This is where a yep. bunch of theologians and apologists and philosophers and, and biologists – <laughs> biologists we get together and we just talk and we're going to talk about the show we're going to talk about 
the resurrection. We're going to talk theology. We're going to talk for whatever you want because this is an interactive time where you can come on and actually participate and yep. ask us questions as well. Um, yeah, so you know, I I, I do got to admit some I did not plug this as much as I should. I should have plugged the after party too as much as I should have. Both of us, Tyler, we did kind of slip there. Uh, um, you? That's that's because Speak you're for a yourself. heretic. You're Speak a heretic. For yourself. But hey, right now we got Dr. Jonathan McGlatchy on. He's going to be joining us here for a little bit. Uh, Joshua Davidson is here, and Dale Glover. Uh, I'm expecting Caleb and Travis to come in at some point. Ooh, okay. Um. So yeah, guys, this is going to be fun. We're just going to talk. I think we should talk about the subjects that we're going to be covering just a little bit. We don't have to give anything yep. away. I don't want, want that to happen. Um, but first, I do want to play this because we didn't get to uh, do this on the radio. Um, but we did have a message from Mr. Granado, and I did want to play that for you guys. It's about four minutes long. Bear with us here. Uh, we are going to get talking, but I do want to give Michael his due. So for... You know, without further ado, here's Michael. Uh, he gives us a message. He was out of town. He wasn't able to join us on the radio. Um, he, so, you know, he's doing a lot of work. He is a teacher. He does look after our children. <laughs> so shut up uh, and play the video. Right. <laughs> no, right. Okay. So, uh, okay. I'm done. I'm done. I praise a lot of our guests. So, you know, I got to do it. Right. So here he is. Michael Granado, guys. There you go. Hello, everyone. My name is Michael Granado. I am going to be uh, Jonathan's interlocutor for the debate on Saturday. Uh, I'm making this video because, unfortunately, I am going to be unable to make the radio show on Friday. I'm currently traveling. Uh, but I did want to hop on this video, give you a very brief introduction to myself and hopefully my general approach to the debate. Um, I don't really like the the term debate conversation. Uh, I, I recently, it's a funny story. I recently listened to Jonathan's debate with cosmic skeptic actually before um, I'd reached out to Tyler previously at telling him that I'd be more than happy to uh, come on the show. Uh, and I'd watched Jonathan's debate with cosmic skeptic. And I got the message from Tyler that uh, Jonathan was interested. So um, thanks to Jonathan for agreeing to do this. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it from what I have seen and heard. Um, Jonathan's an incredibly intelligent person, um, level-headed. Um, I, th I think it's going to be a good discussion. Um, I'm very, very interested in, in having this dialogue with him. And also thanks to David and Tyler for putting all this together in Faith Unaltered. Um, so again, my name is Michael. I come primarily from a teaching background. I've spent the past decade uh, teaching at both a high school and a college level. My academic background is in philosophy. Um, specifically, my, my graduate degrees are in history and historical theology. Interestingly enough, I was once a Christian, um, not to sound like the stereotypical fallen atheist here, but uh, my background's in history, specifically the history of science. Um, for most of my academic career, I've been interested in exploring the intersection between science and religion and the ways in which scientific ideas are accepted and interpreted by people. Uh, started off, I was interested in Newtonian philosophy 
Newton, how Newton's Principia was received by academic theologians in the 17th century. Um, from there, I studied the reception of Darwinism in 19th century America, and now my focus is largely on the philosophy of science, broadly speaking, philosophy of time, specifically the, the reception of Einsteinian relativity in France, a dialogue and a debate that happened between the philosopher Henry Bergson and Gaston Bachelard over the nature and structure of time in Einstein's relativity. So for the discussion on Saturday, I'm really hoping to talk about kind of the the nature and structure of historical arguments that are oftentimes used by apologists to talk about things uh, such as the resurrection and religious claims in general that claim to be historical in nature. Uh, and I'm also going to talk some about my own position, on naturalism that I defend, and the reasons why I believe in naturalism and the reasons why I think that naturalism uh, not necessarily discredit, but why belief in naturalism leads to the idea that the, the supernatural world, kind of the metaphysical superstructure that religions like Christianity are based on, that the, the supernatural world, that we don't, this, the likelihood that the supernatural world exists or that supernatural entities exist is very low. So that's going to be my angle and approach. Uh, but more than anything, I'm just really interested and excited to have this conversation. So I will see all of you on Saturday. Awesome. All right, Tyler, man. Uh, what do we do from here, man? I mean, we have a lot of topics we can just start, you know, pushing out there. Uh what do you want to start with? We do. And I really, I, I don't know why Travis has the TF on his logo, but I, I'm sorry, man. I tried, I keep trying to, uh, to get that to only where it's mine. And I just, I guess I've made everybody Tyler Fowler tonight. So I, my apologies. But since Travis didn't get to join us on the radio show, I do want to bring him on first to kind of get his side of the discussion. We heard Caleb and, and then, so we'll, so we'll go with Travis. We'll jump to Caleb and then David, I'll let you pick uh, our next guest that we're going to speak to. But Travis brother, what is up, man? How are you doing tonight? I'm excited to have you here. And after talking with Caleb, I'm excited for your guys' conversation tomorrow. So if you want to add anything to what Caleb said earlier, brother, feel free. Yeah, so uh, unfortunately, I'm just getting in, so I wasn't able to uh, listen to the show, which um, I, I will go back and uh, listen to it. But um, yeah, uh, I'm Travis. Uh, I occasionally host discussions and things like that. Um, I'm part of the Reasons to Believe team headed up by Dr. Hugh Ross, so um, part of a science faith uh, ministry uh, that I, I really love doing. Uh, in fact, um, one thing that I'm currently working on now, uh, myself and Than Christophilus of Exploring Reality are doing a series on the fine-tuning argument. And so we just did an episode uh, uh, like going over my specific you know, formulation of the argument. And uh, the next video in the series is going to be answering objections because there's a lot of ob objections to the argument. So we're going to be doing that. And um, yeah, just uh, really excited to be here. Right on, brother. Right on. So we we were talking a little bit about theodicy. And just for those who don't uh, know, Travis, okay. can you give a brief introduction on what theodicy is, maybe for those who didn't catch the radio show? Right. Uh, sure. So 
theodicy is basically, you know, um, an answer of why an all good, all loving God would permit things such as evil, like another, like the way I like to say it, bad states of affairs to obtain. Like, uh, why, why does that happen? And I think for myself, what's really important is um, what's known as an axiology or a value system. And very often the naturalist will just sort of presume the, you know, the uh, axiology for the theist. And um, I don't think that's justified. Uh, namely, it's do, uh, you know, should God permit evils that are counterbalanced or um, my particular view is that God is a, uh, while he's a moral agent, he's not a human moral agent under our ethical guidelines. And so I think God is morally permissible in permitting evils so long as they're defeasible. In fact, mm. I think this is especially prevalent in a canonical theism like Christianity. Uh, so you think about like the horrendous sufferings that Christ went through, but they were defeated in, in the resurrection. And so um, let me go into, going into all, all that kind of stuff, uh, the defeat condition, uh, what you know, sort of evils are permissible. Uh, there's is there a fine tuning of, of of you know a virtue building world? You know, would this would our current world be a type of world that God would be not only more morally permissible in creating, but would be likely uh, to create? Uh, it's going to be going over that kind of thing. Okay, fair enough, David. Yeah, so I'm going to start with uh, Jonathan since he's here. I don't want to <laughs> take too much of his time or whatever. But uh, yeah, man, so, I, you know, I got this co competition drive in me, you know. Um, I got to ask, how long How long have you listened to Unbelievable? I, how long have I listened to Unbelievable? Yeah, um, how long have I, you been with them? I, yeah, I mean, I've listened to Unbelievable for several years. I don't obviously listen every week. Uh, I listen probably only occasionally, but I, I've been listening to Unbelievable for maybe a decade um, or more. Uh, I've been on Unbelievable 11 times to date. Wow. Wow. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I remember like uh, when it first came out, the Facebook page, they first had the Facebook page. I was like one of the first four people on there. So I've been listening to it since its conception almost. So I was like, you know, I wonder how long Jonathan actually listened to it before he got on, you know, and just, just see where he was at, you know, but that's awesome, man. Um, yeah, but you know, the, we got, like I said, we got so many topics here. Uh, um, let me think, uh, Jonathan, what is, what is You heard, you heard Mike, is mm -hmm. there anything that, that, you know, you heard from him that just kind of, you want to like, just bring up and say, Hey, you know, this is what we're going to talk about. Uh, you know, this is, this is what I'll address. You know, whatever, whatever you want. I, I want to give you the floor for a minute to just respond to that, that, that video you saw. Sure. So I'm, I'm going to be interested to learn what Michael's uh, arguments are for naturalism and why he thinks that supernatural entities in the world are enormously improbable. I'll be interesting. I'll be interested in uh, listening to you and cross-examining his arguments in that regard. Um, in terms of methodological naturalism, um, one one objection that sometimes is brought up is that a miracle, by definition, is a very is an enormously improbable event. Um, and if it wasn't enormously improbable event, it wouldn't be a miracle. And so the the argument is that the prior probability of God performing a miracle, even supposing that God exists, is astronomically small, right? And 
that's based on the, the the uniform human experience that miracles are ex, um, extraordinarily rare. And so any naturalistic contender for explaining the evidence pertaining to the New Testament and Christian origins has to be preferable to the hypothesis that God has wrought a miracle uh, because any alternative explanation, no matter how implausible, has got to be more plausible than the miracle explanation. It's a very, very common point, which tr can trace its history back to David Hume, the famed Scottish philosopher. And there's a number of significant problems with that particular approach. One is that if we accept the hypothesis, as I do, that God has used miracles in history as authenticating signs to authenticate a messenger. And that's the way that miracles purportedly are used for in both the New and Old Testaments. Um, you see that, for instance, at the time of Moses, where there are miracles that confirm that Moses truly really is a prophet. You've got Deuteronomy 18 that speaks about prophecies confirming that a prophet truly speaks from God. In the New Testament, miracles are described as signs that authenticate Jesus' teachings and his messianic credentials um, and so forth. So if God has used miracles as authenticating signs, then they have to recognizably deviate from the normal course of nature. Otherwise, they would be robbed of their evidential value in authenticating a messenger, right? If, if miracles were just part of the way the world normally works, then mm -hmm. we wouldn't sit up and take notice when God performs a miracle to authenticate a messenger. And so the hypothesis then that God has used miracles as authenticating signs predicts with a high probability that miracles are going to deviate from the way nature normally behaves when left of itself. And so the fact that miracles do in fact deviate from the way nature normally behaves when left of itself mm -hmm. cannot be used as a severe blow against the hypothesis that God has wrought miracles as authenticating signs in history. Um, and so we have to turn to other considerations to try to adjudicate the prior or intrinsic probability. That's the probability of the hypothesis that God has drawn a miracle, such as the resurrection, just given the background information. And I think that you can make a robust case that the prior probability of the resurrection, even if we suppose that the prior probability in the case of any old Joe Blow, any old random individual that selected um, from the population, the probability of God raising them from the dead, even given the supposition that God exists, is astronomically small because God doesn't seem to be in the business of doing that, right? But it doesn't necessarily follow that the prior probability or the intrinsic probability in Jesus' case is equivalently low because there could be, in principle, other lines of evidence that bear independently on Jesus' messianic and divine credentials. And I think that is the case when it comes to Jesus, which provides independent reason to think that God plausibly has motivation for raising Jesus of Nazareth specifically from the dead. Um, and so I would appeal to such evidences as, say, the trilemma argument, which was developed by C.S. Lewis, which is mm -hmm. to say that there's overwhelming evidence that Jesus claimed divine status, and that being the case, then either he was God or he wasn't, and if he wasn't, either he knew it or he didn't. And the fact that he was willing to get himself crucified on account of that messianic and divine claim <laughs> is is compelling reason to think that he was at least sincere. And there's a very small reference class of individuals that can be honestly mistaken about being the creator of the universe and the God of Israel incarnate. And uh, Jesus doesn't seem to fit that reference class. And so that moves the needle in the direction of Jesus 
divine identity. And you could look at um, the argument for messianic prophecy as well, which also bears independently in Jesus' divine and messianic identity. And you could look at um, the conversion of the Apostle Paul and arguments pertaining to that and uh, various other lines of evidence that bear on the existence of the God of Israel and also bear independently on Jesus' messianic and divine identity, which then gives us reason to think that God plausibly has motivation for raising Jesus from the dead. And thus the prior probability in Jesus' case is not as low as it would be in the case of some random individual selected from the population. Dr. Merlachi, I got a question for you. Does the fact that um, Michael, he said that he used to be a Christian and now he is no longer, does that change up your methodology for engaging with him versus somebody that's never been a Christian before? No, I, I my methodology isn't dependent upon the person I'm addressing. It's dependent upon the arguments that are forthcoming. So, um, yeah, it doesn't make any difference. Okay. So, Caleb, uh, you know, just Mr. Miracle Man here uh, with your book. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you have to say? With what John working just this said. time, by the way? Yeah, it's working this time. Perfect. <laughs> Thank goodness we, we tested that before. Uh, yeah, I think I concur with Jonathan for the most part as far as um, I don't think appeals to or at least frequentist models to say that miracles are extraordinarily rare is, is useful because if we're going to go by, well, you know, lying or misperceiving is always more probable, then you can never affirm any extremely rare event. Um, for example, there was one man, I forget what his name was, but uh, he's reported as to win the lottery seven times. Now, that's astronomically improbable. So if you were just to hear that and we say, well, what's more likely that he's lying and that this is being misreported or that he would do this? Well, we know there's lots more examples of people misreporting this and, you know, tabloids and lying. So that's initially more probable. But when you have enough testimony to confirm that enough testimony that's legitimate can, in fact, confirm a very extraordinary event. So. Um, I don't think it's the case that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. I think they just need more controls. And I think you can establish those controls by the credibility of the people telling them. Another issue I have with methodological naturalism that I don't think uh, people who pursue that get pressed enough on is that I don't know whose experience they're appealing to because naturalism is a very, very, very rare and strange event, a strange belief in terms of anthropology. Most people on earth, both historically and today, believe in some kind of supernatural realm, even atheists, I believe polls show about 25% of them believe in ghosts or some kind of spirit. So uh, the idea that there is nothing outside of, uh, that there's only nature, nothing outside of is very strange. And so I don't know why we should try to, to bend backwards and try to appeal to this very small minority of people. Now, granted, the fact that a lot of people believe it doesn't necessarily make it true, that itself doesn't, but it, I think you do have collective religious experience. I think we have to ask either everyone who's having these um, perceptions or religious experience is deluded um, through some kind of sense misperception or the people who are not having these are deluded. And so I think if we weigh the probabilities here. You know, one of us is a person who is seeing light and one of us is a person who's blind. But which one of us is the blind man? I think it's astronomically more probable that the religious experiences are legitimate and that these are accurate um, perceptions, just as light is an accurate perception, just as sound is an accurate perception, than it is that all these people are deluded and that this would be preserved through uh, natural selection. So I just don't see why we should discount the almost universal religious experience. In fact, there's a really interesting book by um, Dr. Justin Barrett called Born Believers, where he argues that child psychology shows that children are inclined to believe in God, not specifically the Christian God, of course, um, but that's why children have imaginary friends and are more inclined to believe in the supernatural. And so the idea that we're all born atheists just isn't um, necessarily empirically justified. 
So that's true. As far as miracles, I know I spent a long time in that question. But yeah, I think that the work I'm doing right now, which hopefully that book will be out by next year, um, I'm specifically focusing on medical documentation, as I said in the um, phone call earlier today. And so I think there's lots of great resources for that. Of course, you have most well-known is Craig Keener's two-volume book on the subject, which is mostly anecdotal, but it's still good to show the quantity of reports. Um, there's also sources like hold on, a book I have here by Dr. Richard Kassdorf. This one's a little bit older, um, came out in the 1970s, but it's called Miracles, A Doctor Investigates, and he has pictures of like pre and post MRIs and x-rays. This is of the pelvis of Lisa Larios, who was a girl with um, cell sarcoma of the pelvis, where her pelvis was essentially Swiss cheese. It was looked over by 18 different doctors. And after attending a, a healing conference, she instantly stood up and was able to walk on her feet for the first time. She'd been in a wheelchair before, which you shouldn't be able to do, given that her pelvis literally has holes in it. Uh, mm -hmm. You would dislocate it and do damage to it. But she rode her bike that day. She walked home that day. And she, from that day forward, had completely um, never did any damage to it. And when they redid the x-rays a little bit later, both the sarcoma was gone and the bone was completely repaired. And that's not something that typically happens naturally. So you have an instantaneous recovery of, you know, bone that shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be healed in that way and, right. and that stuff. So I think when you have enough cases like that, you really should question why uh, methodological naturalism is a, a good starting point. I don't think it is. Caleb, can I ask you a question real quick? Since you, you brought up America, <laughs> fair enough. I was going to say, can I ask you a second question? Never mind. Yeah, anyway, what in your in your study of miracles? What's your favorite story about? What's your favorite miracle story that you've ran across? Oh, the resurrection, that's... man! Come on, <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough one. Um, well, I know that there's there's a couple more well known ones. I know Jonathan knows about Barbara Snyder's case because uh, he he brought it up on his debate with Jonathan uh, Pierce on Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. That one's pretty impressive. That's an instantaneous healing of a woman with muscle atrophy, multiple sclerosis, a collapsed lung, nerve damage, etc. I think my favorite one is one that's quite a bit older than that, and it is a little awkward for me because it's in a Catholic setting and I'm Protestant, so. Uh, that's always, that's always a bit awkward, but it's one that took place in the 1600s, which automatically makes people, you know, cause you know, when stuff happens a long time ago, we're automatically more suspicious of it, but the documentation for it is extremely good. We have primary sources from a few days after the event. We have many different witnesses. We have, uh, elaborate trials. And it basically was the case of a Spaniard named Miguel Piacer, who in 1637 had an accident involving a farming cart where he had gangrene on his leg and they had to go and amputate it. And they took a, um, you know, fire and they had to burn the stump to stop the bleeding. And he became a beggar for two and a half years on a wooden leg. He had an official license to beg. Um, he would often go out in the town and he would rub um, oil from the lamps onto his wound uh, just to, to cure the pain. And in 1640, uh, after he uh, awoke from having a dream of the Virgin Mary, he looked and he looked and saw that his leg was miraculously back after being amputated. So everyone obviously freaked out about this and the church called for a formal inquiry to be conducted. And so 11 months later, they get dozens of witnesses who said, yes, I saw Miguel as a beggar. I saw him rub the oil on his naked stump. And I saw that we had the doctors who amputated the leg, uh, two surgeons and including many of the hospital staff who buried the leg. Um, mm -hmm. All of them attested to this uh, several Protestants and Anglicans who hated the Catholics at the time. Um, even the uh, ambassador to England at the time saw this because Miguel got to meet the King of Spain when he became a celebrity. Wow. And even David Hume in that in his famous essay on miracles mentions this. And he basically says, you know, we have the journal of a cardinal who mentions meeting this man and seeing him with two legs. And it's such a fantastic story, but he doesn't need to go to investigate this because we know that a miracle is supported by any human testimony. 
is more likely to be a uh, subject of human deception or, or uh, deceit than it is to be a real legitimate miracle. So humans basically saying, yeah. I don't have to even bother to look into this. I know it's a fraud without being able to prove it. I don't have to prove it to you because we know this can't happen. So Hume hand waves it away as, as just another claim. But I think the historical evidence for that is very good. And I think the alternative hypotheses that have been proposed by some scholars, such as Miguel faked being an amputee for two and a half years um, and like hit his leg, has a quandrum of problems. And so I have a long chapter on that particular case and other cases of people growing organs back or limbs back. So that's wow. probably my personal favorite one. Are you familiar with the Dwayne Miller story? Yes. Pastor that received his voice while pre I think he was preaching a sermon. Uh, Josh uh, Davidson actually turned me on to that. Um, he showed me the YouTube video, and the guy's preaching about why sometimes God doesn't answer prayers. And I mean, you can tell like his voice is messed up. I think it was, something happened, and and for twenty eighteen or twenty years, his voice was completely shot. And then while he's preaching that that sermon, he he gets his voice back. And it's like you kind of hear him choke a little bit and kind of cough. And then he starts talking like, like like he ain't never had a problem in his life. And it's just so great because we, whenever we have, you know, I mean, we do in this world, we have a lot of, you know, the fake stuff, which really, I think, dampens, you know, whenever miracles actually do happen, legit miracles. And but but it's true. I really think that God still does miracles today. And I think Dwayne Miller's, you know, proof of that. Yeah, that's on video, as you said. I don't think it was yeah. for 20 years. I believe it for, was like for one or about maybe two or three years. Oh, real? Okay. I'm he idea. had a, it was some kind of, I think it was like flu or pneumonia or some kind of infection, but it had paralyzed and scarred his vocal cords. Okay. And so after that healing, he went back. He had been seen by 60 different doctors, uh, including a symposium in Sweden. And after he had been healed, he went back and got scans. And the scars that had been on, not only were his vocal cords not paralyzed, but the scarring was also gone. Wow. Uh, which doesn't normally happen. So, um, yeah, that's that's another really incredible case. I, I have a whole section, actually, of miracles that are caught on video because I try to go through and look at all the ones. Oh, why are these only third world countries? Well, they're not. Here's some American ones. Well, why are these never caught on video? Well, they are. Here are some examples. Why doesn't God ever heal MPTs? Well, he does. Here's some examples. So right. I try to go over all the contrivances you hear about those and say that people just haven't bothered to look into them because I would rather them say, okay, here's an example, but here's why it's wrong. Than for them to just say this doesn't ever happen. So uh, I, I think that's a better way to go about it. Right on, brother. Right. Yeah. You, you know, I just, you know, I've always wondered why we give Hume so much credit. <laughs> I mean, it, once you find out the guy was actually answered by contemporaries in his time and those answers were actually successful, I, I still don't know why people hold on to them, what Hume has to say. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just don't get it. But, uh, Dale, I know you had a question for Jonathan and Caleb, so I want to give you the floor to ask those questions real quick. Awesome. Yeah, uh, thanks for giving me an opportunity to, to be here. And, um, yeah, so, Jonathan, I know you're limited on time, so I'll start with you. Um, I kind of agree. With, I agree with everything you said about the frequentist prior probability argument and that, you know, atheists typically say, well, God doesn't raise billions of people throughout history. Therefore, it's a very low prior probability that he would have raised Jesus or raised Jesus. Sorry. Um, but I'm curious, have you heard of um, some atheists give kind of a, a low prior pr probability argument based on the divine modus operandi? They'll say, well, look, it's very low probability that the Christian God would raise anyone. Why? Because look at all the heroes in the Bible. God, the majority of people in the Bible, God doesn't raise them. Um, so it's kind of a nuanced thing. Like, I don't know if you've heard of that and how do you respond to that? 
Sure, I, I can respond to that. So what I would say there is, first of all, the Old Testament prophesies that the Messiah specifically would be raised from the dead. You can find that in Isaiah 53.10. And so if we have independent reason to think that Jesus is the Messiah, then the proper probability in Jesus' case is higher than for other people because it provides one motivation for why God might want to raise Jesus from the dead. In fact, Jesus himself said that his resurrection from the dead would be the ultimate vindication of his radical messianic and divine self-claims. Um, for example, in John chapter 2, verse 19, uh, just after in verse 18, the Jews have asked Jesus following his cleansing of the temple, but what sign do you show, do you prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus responds, destroy this temple and I will rebuild, and I will rebuild it in three days. And of course, in a Jesus' trial before Caiaphas that we find in Mark 14, verse 57, 58, and also in Matthew 26, 16, 61, the false witnesses come forward and they testify falsely against Jesus saying, we heard this man say I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days I'll build another, but not made by human hands. And Jesus never actually said that. It's a garbled version of something Jesus said. But the reader of Matthew and Mark is not filled in as to what Jesus actually said. The reader is just left hanging. It's an unexplained illusion. And it's a pretty serious allegation. It's not the sort of thing that you want to make jokes about in first century Judea. Um, it's like going through airport security and say, don't worry about the bomb in the bag or something like that. It's just not the sort of thing you make jokes about. And yet the reader's just left hanging. There's no pretext or elaboration on what Jesus in fact said. And But if you read John's account, John chapter two, as I mentioned, we find that uh, John gives us the pretext of what Jesus said. And he's is actually concerning his resurrection from the dead. Um, but John doesn't give us the later misrepresentations, the use of his uh, as an accusation. And so those appear, this is an, un, an example of an undesigned coincidence that actually uh, provides evidence of um, independent corroboration of, of that saying of Jesus. And, and so uh, another example would be in Mark 8, where in the context of Jesus talking about his death and subsequent resurrection, Peter rebukes him, and you have this twofold rebuke. Uh, Peter rebukes Jesus, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, or adversary, um, for you've not in mind the things of God, but the things of men, which fulfills a criterion of embarrassment, uh, which suggests that this is an authentic um, saying. So we have very good evidence that Jesus predicted his impending death and his subsequent resurrection, and that he connected that with his messianic identity. So that's also relevant. And then we also have, in addition to... Um, we've got messy argument for messianic prophecy, which I think has merit. Um, unfortunately, there's some treatments of this subject that have had a tendency to overstate the argument for messianic prophecy, but I think that it does carry significant evidential value um, if it's properly nuanced. So an example of messianic prophecy would be in um, Isaiah 53 uh, verses 1 and 2, we learn that the Messiah is supposed to be rejected by his own people, which by itself is not particularly surprising prophecy because there were many prophets, of course, in ancient Israel that were rejected by the Jewish people. Um, but when you read Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, we learn that the Messiah was supposed to be a light for the Gentiles, so God's salvation might reach the ends of the earth. Now, given that the Messiah is supposed to be rejected by his own people, how probable is it that he would nonetheless bring representatives of all nations to a recognition of the God of Israel. Well, that seems to me to be quite surprising. Highly expected of Christianity is true, and Jesus really is the Messiah. Quite surprising on the contrary, uh, if that is false. And so that 
that tends to move the needle in the direction of Christianity. Um, another example would be Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, which I think is well supported historically by evidence. And that, of course, fulfills Micah 5, verse 2, which says the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Um, you've also got the coincidence that Jesus death happens to coincide with the Feast of Passover, given the theological symbolism associated with uh, the um, the Passover imagery, the Passover lamb. Um, and when the, the back in the Exodus, the last of the 10 plagues was the um, smiting of the firstborn of every household of the Egyptians. And the Hebrews were instructed to put, just to smear the, the blood of this lamb on their doorposts. And as the angel of death um, saw the blood, he would pass over those homes, leaving the firstborn unscathed. And so Jesus fulfills that Passover imagery. He is our Passover lamb, um, and the, the the wrath of God passes over us if we apply Christ's blood to our hearts. And so uh, it's quite a striking coincidence then that Jesus happens to die on the day of Passover, given the theological import of that. And there's overwhelming evidence that Jesus' death was, in fact, on Nisan 15th, um, and, and so forth. And uh and then I also mentioned you've got the trilemma argument, which is basically that there's very compelling evidence to think that Jesus claimed divine status, and that being the case, he either was God or he wasn't, and if he wasn't, he either knew about it or he didn't. And there's very compelling evidence um, that um, he was sincere. The fact that he was willing to die as a martyr um, by crucifixion is evidence that tends to confirm that. And there's a very small reference class of individuals that can be honest and mistaken about being the God of Israel incarnate. Um, and Jesus doesn't appear to fit that reference class. You know, but you see him exercising humility. He washes the disciples' feet and, and so forth. And uh, and so that, again, moves the needle in the direction of Jesus' identity. And so those arguments, uh, certainly cumulatively, I think, are very, very compelling that there's already a relatively high prior probability of God raising Jesus specifically from the dead. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And I fully agree with what you're saying. I, I think it's good. Look, it, it's number one, it's about the prior probability that God would raise Jesus given he had a motivating reason to do so. And you're providing evidence that yes, he does have that reason. So the, that raises the prior probability. So yeah. Uh, perfect answer. Thank you. Um, all right, Caleb, um, I had one question for you. So I know you're the miracles guy and you're doing all the research. Um, I'm wondering about the Orthodox, the Holy Fire miracle of Jerusalem. Um, have you looked into this at all? Um, I know Dr. Giulio Fonte has done some scientific investigations into it. Um, what do you make of it? Is there any merit to it or, or not? So I have to be honest, I have not read the paper that you sent me yet because I got busy and <laughs> I've been doing other things. But without looking at that, at that, um, I have not thought much of it. Um, I, I kind of presumed and from the few writings I have seen of people mentioning it, it seems just more of a traditional thing where people go in and then they come out and the, and the fire's lit. So um, with my limited knowledge into it, I don't see why someone couldn't just be lighting a um, a candle on fire. I don't necessarily see that as requiring divine in intervention unless there's some kind of control to prevent that. But I'm not aware of any like um, extensive tests that have been done to control that. But again, if there, ha if there, ha if there has been a study um, that's fine. I just, I, it, it gets complicated with these things because when you look at like rituals and of course Dale will know this with a shot of turn because he's looked into this more than probably most people who are alive today. Uh, or even like images like Our Lady of Guadalupe, you just get a lot of, um, you get a lot of backlash and traction and how some of these things are done. So I typically stick with, um, with healing miracles. Although I do have a couple of examples in the book 
most of them are in Catholic contexts of non-healing miracles. So that will include things like the Virgin Mary appearing in Zaytun, Egypt and being photographed and seen by tens of thousands of people or uh, Joseph of Cupertino levitating in front of hundreds of people and stuff like that. So um, there are a few examples out there, but typically that's not an area that I'm as interested in, but you know, I, I'm always willing to, uh, to change my mind if there is um, evidence out there. I just don't know how much has actually been published on it. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Right on. Great questions. Um, we did actually have a question from our buddy, uh, Than Christophilus. Uh, let's see if I can pull that up. I would love to hear, well, <laughs> had it there we go i would love to hear how uh dr mcclatchy would respond to someone like godless engineer who would say that undesigned coincidence doesn't work because of the synoptic problem sure so i can respond to this and if if listeners uh would like the detailed response to this particular point i would refer them to my six-part series on my website johnthemcclatchy.com where i respond to Richard Carrier, who makes this point, and I respond in great detail there. Um, but I think that this point uh, underestimates the value, the evidential value of casualness uh, when it comes to the um, the undesigned coincidences. Um, so for those of you in the audience who don't understand, who don't know the concept of undesigned coincidences, let me just give a couple examples real quick to illustrate. So in... Um, so um so let's take an example um um let's, let's take an example between the synoptics i mean obviously the argument that the synoptic problem resolves undesigned coincidences doesn't apply to examples between the synoptics and john of which there are many and doesn't also doesn't apply of course to examples between the book of acts and letters of paul of which there are many um but there are examples of intersynoptic coincidences um so matthew 14 for example we read, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist, he's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And so that phrase to his servants is unique to Matthew's account. Um, now, this raises two interesting questions. Why is Herod talking about this matter to his servants? And how, do, how does Matthew know what Herod is saying to his servants, presumably in the privacy of his own palace. Now, if we look at Luke's account in chapter number eight, it says, soon afterward, Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the 12 were with him. And also some women who'd been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. And that lists those women. These are Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. And so, there's a reference there to Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household manager, which then gives us some illumination as to why Herod is talking about this matter to his servants. How Matthew comes to know what Herod is saying to his servants, presumably in the privacy of his own palace. Jesus has female, a female disciple who's married to someone in the highest ranks of Herod's employment. Um, and so uh, there you have two pericopes um, in two distinct pericopes between two different gospels, Matthew and Luke, which interlock in this very casual and undesigned way. It's not that Luke is including this detail to try and make sense of, of Matthew. They're, they're just not connected. Um, and Luke doesn't include in his account this um, 
this information that Herod was speaking to his servants concerning Jesus and what Herod was saying. Another example uh, between the synoptics is, uh, or actually, here's one between uh, the synoptics and John. So in Luke 22, you have the um, the institution of the uh, Lord's Supper. And in verse 24, this is at the last Passover meal that Jesus has with his disciples right before his death. And it says from verse 24, a dispute also arose among the, the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And so here we learn that there was this debate among the disciples over dinner over who among them is the greatest. And Jesus says, who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? It's not the one who reclines at table, but I'm among you as the one who serves. And what's, what's Jesus meaning when he says, I'm among you as the one who serves? Now, if we go over to John's account in chapter number, um, <clears throat> chapter number uh, 13, um, this is when this is speaking about the same Passover meal that Jesus has with his disciples. And it says now, um, uh, so it, it basically gives the, the account of Jesus and washing the disciples feet. And uh, so it says during supper, when the devil had already put into his uh, into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid out he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel tied it around his waist and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, John doesn't give us any, uh, doesn't give, doesn't report to us the object lesson, uh, sorry, doesn't report to us the, the occasion that gave rise to this object lesson in servanthood. He reports the object lesson itself, namely Jesus taking this towel and washing the disciples' feet, which so Jesus shows his humility before the disciples and that he um, even though he's the greatest among them, is the one who serves. Now, in the synoptics, in Luke, we have the um, this the same Passover meal where it reports the, the occasion that gave rise to this object lesson without actually reporting the object lesson itself. So this casual dovetailing between the, uh, Luke and John here points to the historicity of this particular account. Um, what, one more example quickly. So this is another inter-synoptic example. So in um, Mark chapter um, three, we have the listing of the uh, um, disciples. And it says um, from ver in verse 17, James, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Now, um, this raises an interesting question in the mind of the audience. Why does Jesus call James and John Boanerges, meaning sons of thunder? There's no... Uh, explanation given to us in Mark's gospel. It's an unexplained allusion with no further elaboration or clarification. Now, if we go over to Luke's account, a completely different pericope, um, not a parallel account. In Luke 9, verse 51 to 55, we read, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go, up, go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
but the, he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. And so that provides a little window of insight into the personality of James and John, where they say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And of course, Jesus rebukes them and they move on. Uh, but that provides some, uh, some illumination as to why Jesus plausibly gave them the name uh, Boanerges, meaning sons of thunder, according to Mark 3. So it's the casualness uh, where you have one account, which in a very incidental way explains some loose end of another account. And I don't think that, I mean, I don't think that that's readily explained by, by pointing to synoptic dependence. Does that answer your question or answer the question? Yeah, I believe yeah, yeah. so. Sorry, I was muted. But yeah, I believe so. And thank you for that uh, explanation, Dr. McClatchy. I really appreciate it. I'm, it's funny. I'm kind of in a side chat over here. I think I'm getting ready to get David into a debate with uh, your way or Yahweh. Would any panel member be willing to debate whether the orthodox position of the incarnation is biblical? And as soon as David said, I would, I jumped on it. So let's get this thing going. But uh, but no, I really appreciate that uh, explanation, Doctor McLatchy. Any of our other panel, Travis, you've been kind of quiet. Josh, you've been really quiet, brother. You got anything you want to add? Um, not not necessarily add. I I was I was really enjoying listening. To be honest with you, uh, I, I was saying in the side chat that uh, I feel uh, I feel educationally unqualified to be on this panel. I, I, I have to admit that my highest level of education is a C average in high school, one of the poorest high schools in the country. So I, I'm just really, really pleased to be able to listen in on uh, some of you guys that have, have, mm -hmm. have really spent the time and the energy on learning and understanding what it is that you're talking about in your specific fields. And, you know, nobody can know everything, but you guys have really True. made a focus of what you've learned. Uh, and I can admire that so much. Like, I don't have any formal education, but I am an information forager. And so um, in terms of where I come from, uh, this this is just really exciting for me. I I said on the, the CSG episode we did last week with uh, uh, Nicholas that I, I've become addicted to not being the smartest guy in the room. And this is really the place for me. <laughs> so I'm, yeah. just, I'm really pleased to be here right now. Yeah, and uh, likewise, um, my main specialty is in uh, natural theology, specifically uh, fine-tuning and contingency arguments. That's kind of my uh, bread and butter. Also, you know, viewing uh, theism as a theory and comparing its theoretical virtues. Uh, most recently, I've um, really started looking into uh, the moral argument. Uh, so I'm re reading quite a few of uh, Dr. David Baggett's books, uh, on the moral argument, and um, I've also like really been getting into N.T. Wright, a lot of his work uh, recently. So, um, yeah, I mean, I just uh, I'm just really enjoying, you know, hearing about, you know, as far as the synoptics and the Gospels and things of that nature. It's not really my area of specialties. Uh, so I'm just lapping up uh, uh, hearing it. Right on, man. Right on, Travis. Yeah. David, what you got, brother? No, we got Than in the. Uh, I know Than came. He wanted to ask something, so uh, he was cooking. So I was giving him a that little bit more time to cook. You have something else? No, that was my. You already asked my question. Yeah. Did you want to do anything else? Ask anything no, else? Why I, just, I really appreciate. Um, I, I really appreciate Dr. McClatchy's work. Um, I I'll kind of echo Josh's words here. I'm. I'm not a scholar by any sense of the word. I oh, just please. take scholarly work and, <laughs> but. Oh, please. Come on, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I just take scholarly work and try to bring it to the church so the, the church is better equipped to handle evangelism and handle the tough conversations. And so that way they can affect people around in their local circles. Right. So I'm just, I'm just grateful to be here. Oh, and by the way, I will say that Than is helping me on my fine tuning argument. So he's given me some input and uh, the fine tuning argument is not all mine. I do share some of it with uh, Than. So to give him props on I that. Do have, I do have some stuff that I think we should add in by the way, but that can, <laughs> yeah, right. we'll talk, we'll we're going to we're gonna have to get both of you guys to come on and talk should, about that. Yeah, I think. We yeah, add, of course. Like the long story short, I think we should add in some axiological predictions. Um, yes, uh, the Saint fostering environment and some other things, but right, we'll talk later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you guys are fine tuning right. your fine tuning argument. There. Right. That's pretty good. That's it. That's it. Okay, so I want to. Okay, so this might sound weird. All right, but. Because I've got the theodicy guys here as well, and one narrative structure guy, I want to see where we can go with narrative structure and theodicy here. I want to kind of see if we can – is there any way that we can combine the, the two, and, and does the narrative structure give us, uh, in, in your mind, uh, Josh, a – a resolution to the emotional problem of evil. That's um, e the emotional problem. It, yeah. Well, the I emotional mean, I, problem I because it's really linked. Let, let, I can't really let you you talk about the logical problem because you know narrative. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm teasing. My well, well, I I can <laughs> I say to, that I the, have to do a little jab. You know, the the emotional problem is is something that is more closely linked to lived experience, uh, and and so. Because of that, it is more closely linked to what I would say is 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 something that the narrative structure can speak to. Um, because of that, I would say that the the way that okay, just so so that the rest of the guys that are here, because I'm not sure if you guys listened to the the episode that we did on narrative structure. Um, ultimately, what what it means is is in in terms of cognitive science and human perception, um, we actually perceive what's around us. Our, our past, our present, we even conceive of the future within the framework of story or narrative. In fact, um, it was said by uh, uh, John Verveke and as well as uh, uh, Dr. Peterson, who's a psychologist, uh, they have great overlap. And then what they were talking about was how um, if, you, if you build a building, you build it on the ground, right? Uh, if you have a thought, it's nested on top of something. The thing that it's nested on top of is the 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 framework of the narrative or the framework of the uh, the story or the uh, the immediate sense data that you're experiencing. And and the way that you interact with reality when you're doing that is you have let's say a hierarchy of values, right? Um, and and like 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 uh, I, I think it was. Travis, was it you, you mentioned that you had to have a standard of value by which you judge the problem of evil or else there's um, nothing to nest the problem in, right? And right, so, right, yeah, and axiology, like, yeah, like how we value, like how God should value things, yeah. Right, and so in terms of that value hierarchy, even in our lived experience, let's say you have a frame of reference for what it is that you're doing and what it is that you're desiring, um, and, and the way that you, the way that you, acted out in that frame of reference is I'm in this place. What I desire is this thing. 
the satiation of this desire or this passion or this drive, this frame is qualified by the thing that I have at the top of this immediate value structure, right? And that, that let's say, for, an, for example, you could have something like thirst, right? Thirst is a framework that we're all familiar with. You get thirsty and then immediately your brain shuts off everything that becomes everything, everything that's not relevant to obtaining something to drink becomes immediately irrelevant and you have to make willful uh, uh, engagement with things that have nothing to do with drinking, right? And you have to uh, uh, purpose in yourself to ignore that framework and create for yourself another story to live in. But most immediately, if you're really thirsty, let's say you're dying of thirst, there's nothing your will can do to drop out of that frame. You're going to have only that frame to work with that's at the top of your hierarchy of values. And if that's at the top of the hierarchy of values, it literally informs your perception of relevance. And relevance is something that 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 gives us the ability to interact with the world uh, in a way that that let's say if uh, and this is something that Garrett was mentioning in the show earlier is that. Uh, uh, if, if you, if you don't have a hierarchy of perception to say one thing is more important than another, there are simply too many facts to look at in the world. You will be paralyzed and you will not have a selective mechanism by which you can act. You need to have a hierarchy of values to select from in order to have something guide you forward. Right. And so if we say that something is good or evil, it has to fall within a frame of reference for something good or evil. Right. And so in order to have a problem of evil, you actually have to live within that narrative structure and say something is out of place and interrupts or uh, uh, disables my frame of reference to the point where I'm I'm immobilized or I'm dead or something like that, right? Where like um, th there are things that like, let's say, um, you know, uh, uh, the difference between um, I, I have a stubbed toe or I have cancer, right? There's a, there's a larger disruption from one to the other. And depending on the disruption of your frame of reference is going to be something that, that illuminates to you more so of what we call that problem of pain or that problem of evil. And we just look at it in terms of magnitude when we think logically, but realistically, moment to moment, we don't live on logic. Logic becomes something like a second level abstraction. You don't live in logic. You use logic to guide where or what you live in, right? And so in terms of in terms of the forming of the problem of evil, especially the emotional problem of evil, where it's like, I feel this thing, I experience this thing, and it doesn't seem in my experience that I can ignore my suffering. Therefore, it's the most important thing in the world. It's the most prominent thing in my experience. I can't ignore it, and there needs to be a justification for it. What is it? And so I think that the narrative, the narrative view of the world that I'm describing is something that actually give us, gives us the ground on which we can even support something like uh, a, an argument for good or an argument for evil, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so um, basically, uh, of course, I'm going to get in, in, into it a lot more uh, tomorrow, but uh, I would kind of follow suit with uh, like what John Chisholm, uh, John Schneider, Trent Doherty uh, and, and uh, even Marilyn McCord Adams would follow with uh, this idea of defeasible evils that God is more concerned about what we become than what necessarily we go through. But here's what's interesting with the uh, with the emotional problem. That's where I think Christianity has the biggest advantage because we're told to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, uh, and, and everything, and you know, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, Frankly, I, I think Christianity has the uh, 
the best problem to the emotional problem of evil. It's it's agape love. Right. I agree with that. And I think that actually, if if I were to take that a step man, further, Travis, I was about to say that. amen. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> if I were to import, if I were to import what Travis just added into what I said, ultimately the frame of reference would be my own personal suffering. And the way that this ties into the narrative structure we're going to be talking about tomorrow is participating in that story. I rejoice with those who rejoice. I participate in that story. I willfully engage in their part of the story, right? And so if I if I say, and, and this is something that I think uh, the modern world has a great misconception of is we're not main characters in our own story. We're tangential characters in a story we all share and we can all participate in a story, right? And like you said, the suffering is nested in something larger than your immediate experience. There's something like a meta story that the immediate framework is nested in, right? And that meta story is something like the proper image of God. And when we reflect the proper image of God, all those immediacies kind of fade into their their place. They they find their they find their relevance or they find their fulfillment in that larger narrative. The reason why Christ died and was tortured to death was for something more profound and and less immediate than the actual suffering he experienced. It was something that had an eternal value. So there are perishable stories or finite stories and infinite stories. And the infinite story that we participate in is an ongoing story of God's creation, the fall, the redemption, the revelation at the end, the judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. That's something like the meta story that all of our immediate stories are nested in. And that's what can justify the immediate suffering for the greater good, something like that. And thinking about it as that kind of story, it gives us a greater privilege in participating with that story in a moment to moment basis and makes each individual instance of suffering or of good for that matter of that much more value. You know what I, I think is uh, really fascinating with what you just said, uh, Josh, is not only did uh, Christ, you know, defeat the evil, obviously in his resurrection, but even on a personal note, what, you know, he said, father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So it was that he he personally loved and forgave them. So he defeated that that emotionally, and then obviously in the resurrection he defeated evil. So yeah. Doctor McClatchy um, had a question actually for you, Josh, and then Caleb had a question. So Doctor McClatchy, if you want to go ahead and ask yours. Sure. So when it comes to the problem of evil, one uh, objection that's raised to the problem of evil, which I think your argument is also along the lines of is that uh, in order for the problem evil to get off the ground, it requires that you presuppose some uh, objective standard of right and wrong, uh, which grounds evil. And therefore evil is in fact evidence for the existence of God in, in that sense. And, and or right. the atheist can't consistently run the argument from evil if, unless they grant moral realism, which points to God. I, I personally don't like that argument myself, and I think there's a really significant vulnerability to that argument, which is right. that the argument from evil does not require that the atheist grant moral realism. It's, it's generally run by atheist philosophers as an internal critique, which is to say that even if uh, the atheist grants for the sake of argument that they cannot objectively ground mm -hmm. moral realism, the, um, the, the only relevant point 
is that the theist claims that they can and that the way that the world is is inconsistent with the way that one would expect on the supposition right. of theism. Does that make sense? How would you respond to that particular objection? Yeah, so um, let me just say I agree with you. I think that's a terrible argument that uh, in order you know, for the argument uh, from evil to get off the ground, do you have to suppose more realism and more realism? No, I, I, I think that's a, that's a terrible apologetic, and I, it's one I certainly wouldn't use. What, uh, what I'm using is this idea of uh, defeasible evils. And in fact, when you mention, uh, you know, that there's a certain way in which the world should be, um, what I'm going to be doing is kind of going over Trent Doherty's uh, fine. In fact, there's a Bayesian argument I'm, I'm going to be running, but there's a certain amount, level and distribution of evils uh, that, that we would expect to, to build the highest virtues but not so high as that it would uh, completely overwhelm the vast majority of the population. So um, I'm, I'm going to be going on a defeat condition, not that, uh, not that somehow the, it's counterbalanced or that you need a uh, objective morality because you're right. Yeah. It, it, it would suffer from an internal critique and I just, I, I don't like that apologetic. That, that, that's the way that I interpreted jo what Josh was arguing. Did I misunderstand you, Josh? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought, I thought you meant me. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> Y'all were talking on the same level there. <laughs> well, I wasn't After actually making Christ a moral first. argument. Um, I wasn't actually making a moral argument. What I was trying to explain was the cognitive framework by which we perceive our, our experience, our, our thoughts, and our intents, and our desires, as well as our decisions and our actions, right? And so what I was saying is that what we experience, what we think, what we, what we plan, what we remember, all of those things exist and occur within the framework of a story. And, and in terms of, because the, the question was, was how do I tie that into theodicy? And so what I was saying was that because our human cognition and our perception is nested in something that approximates the framework of a story, that you can't, in fact, make an argument for evil without acknowledging that you're existing within that story framework. And you would have to then uh, uh, appeal to something like your experience, which brings it right outside the, the, the logical abstraction and grounds it in, in, in our experience here, our reality, what we act out, right? Not just what we think, but what we act out. Um, and so there are, and, and you, could, you could divide actions into things that are like moral or a, you know, morally neutral or evil or something like that. You can even divide your experiences that way. And so I'm not necessarily making a moral argument. What I was doing was, was tying in um, the, the framework that I use to explain um, uh, like symbolic structures and narrative patterns, especially the things that exist in the scripture as narrative patterns and the things that we would relate to like typology and stuff and how that would relate to uh, the more immediate experience of humans uh, because David was asking about the emotional problem of evil. And so I was just bringing that within the, the the framework of of a story because that's how human cognition works. We can't actually think or experience or plan or remember unless we're doing it within the framework of a story. And so in a story, you can have uh, evil that occurs. Um, and sometimes it turns into tragedy because it's not redeemed, right? But in the framework of the Christian story, evil gets redeemed. Evil gets judged, and the evil that occurs to individuals who are redeemed gets redeemed even higher and brought into that unity 
with uh, 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 their participation in the divine life. And so I was just relaying that back. I wasn't actually making a moral argument. So you weren't wrong. Uh, it does have a correlation, but I wasn't necessarily talking about objective evil or objective good. I was talking okay. about specifically like a narrative framework of cognition. Okay. Did you want me All to right, Caleb? Me? Yeah, you're, you're, you're next, bro. Yeah, no, I think that the points that were made early were right as far. Well, this is just a caveat. It's not the question. But I think that the skeptic could really just say that it's semantics to call it the problem of evil. They could just say it's the problem of indifference, I think, is how Paul Draper puts it, right? That um, it seems that the universe is indifferent towards human uh, survival or human flourishing, which is what we expect under naturalism, but not what we'd expect if God values human life. But so that's, I think, how the, the skeptic would respond. But my question to Josh was, I, I agree with Josh that God is the, um, if I'm understanding correct, kind of the end all be all to the narrative, the end of all of our desires. Um, I think C.S. Lewis had argued something along those lines. But um, I guess my question for Josh is, uh, how does this story end? And I, I'm going to be showing my cards a little bit here. And I know Travis and I have had disagreements on this particular issue. But I feel like the question of theodicy really ends with um, the kind of soteriology. So as someone who is a advocates more for, um, you know, Christian universalism, in the sense that I think God does redeem everyone through Christ and that everyone will eventually become Christians, whether in this on this life or the next life. Um, how does how does a view where God um, wipes out or eternally punishes the, the majority of people who've ever lived um, satisfy that end goal? Would it not make more sense for people if God is the end goal that people wouldn't want to reject him, that um, he's everything that they could satisfy. And so by rejecting God, any motivation you could have is still grounded in God. And so it's almost incoherent for you to logically reject God forever. Um, and so I guess, how does that work with defeasible evils, right? Like, is evil really defeated if people are eternally separated from God and God has to compromise with what he, he actually wants for all of eternity? Gotcha. Okay, so there are, um, Trent Doherty would say that, um, as far as soteriology, he would say as long as it's even logically possible to be defeated, uh, it's fine. Uh, my own view would be, um, I, I think, you know, um, there are several ways we can lay this out. But no, I don't think the defeat of evil relies on uh, everyone going to heaven. Um, although um, I, I, I'm sort of on the fence where I, where I lie with that. It's compatible I, with it, though, right? Oh, like, assuming oh, that not not automatically assuming that they go through hell is like you know refining them and is for sure. future soul making right okay right just, yeah yeah um now now here's the thing i i think um some are obviously gonna fare yeah better than others in fact this is something i, I i've been kind of thinking about the doctrine of hell uh lately and I, i've kind of come down to two views either a universal reconciliation in christ or uh some sort of eternal separationist view where what we call torment isn't actually physical torment but it's more like restraint uh this is a, Hugh Ross kind of goes with that, that, that oh, so, you, so you would reject any model of like conditional immortality where you wicked are just wiped out of existence yeah I I, I can't square that I, I just I can't I agree but uh, for different uh, reasons. yeah <laughs> I, I, philosophically I, I well, I yours is heretical there, uh, Caleb. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. well, technically, either of them are, yeah. Tell that to Origin. Well, well um, so, or, well, yeah, Origin was a little weird. Clement, he did cut off his, of, uh, hey, Origin did cut off his balls to read the Old Testament. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay, I will I'm say, sorry. um, I'm sorry, I'm getting far afield here, but hey, condi con uh, conditional, 
conditional immortality or annihilationism, um, it does, uh, I think the best place people can go in defense of that is it does seem to have quite a bit of scriptural support, but then I think the other views do as well. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's just not my cup of tea. I think that's a fair answer. Josh, did you have any thoughts on that? Um, as, as far as, um, your, your question specifically, can you, can you repeat what the gist of the question was? Cause I kind of got lost in Travis. Yeah, mind. no, you're, you're good. Um, so I guess it's like, if you think it, I think we both agree with like the defeasible evil, that evil is something that's defeated. And that's like the end of the narrative, that it's a narrative structure. That it's not just, we can't look at evil in isolation. Oh, okay. Our character. So if, if God, if God is like the end all be all of, of value, right. Which I think we would agree. Um, does it make, wouldn't that, wouldn't the logical um, following of that be that like everyone finds this value and that's what they end up wanting because God is everything that we could ever want. Right. Um, if you, if you sin and you, and you try to favor something else, you're favoring a lesser, a lesser, less valuable thing, even if you don't know it, mm -hmm. know it out of ignorance. So if God wipes that ignorance from our eyes, eventually, wouldn't it follow that everyone would want to freely be in a relationship with God? And wouldn't that make sense to end this narrative structure? Rather, having people separated from God for all of eternity and God having to eternally compromise doesn't seem to me to be fulfilling this narrative. It seems to be like a, it's, it's not a defeasible evil. It's an evil that always exists and that always continues to persist that will never be overcome. So I guess like, how does that work with the narrative structure? If you believe in an eternal hell and that model? Um, well, well, ultimately, I, I, I think I think perhaps it's it's a misunderstanding of what I mean by a narrative structure. Um, what I what I don't mean is the logical category of how we form doctrines or or argue for them. Um, what I'm talking about specifically is um, the 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 correlation of the the different fragments of patterns that we see that make up reality and human experience. Um, when when you say um, God is the highest form of value or the highest good. I agree. Even if you're speaking ontologically, I agree. He is the highest good, right? But in the terms, in terms of a lived experience of, let's say, someone who's uh, ardently an atheist and disagrees that God could be the highest form of good, all he's done is deleted the thing that would have been the foundation for any good he could have achieved here and cheapened everything for himself. And so even in that sense, what he's doing is building a special hell narratively for himself. Um, and so I'm not necessarily saying uh, anything about the existence of hell when I say that um, uh, evil will be conquered. Um, when I say evil is conquered um, is the same thing as when I say death has been defeated in the death of Christ, right? Christ died and used death as a weapon against death, right? So evil as just like a category or an abstraction, something like that, where it's like this thing, this thing that we say, this is evil, right? And God's going to defeat this thing. Rather, instead, it would be this character, right? The evil one or the evil principalities. Um, and, and the way that we would look at that, uh, let's say, uh, symbolically or spiritually speaking, rather than logically speaking, because stories don't necessarily behave by a logical structure. Uh, they behave by an experiential or a willful one which is why it's more about participation than it is about something like uh, like a logical telos, right? Like God has an end in mind, uh, but it's not an end necessarily. It's a story that doesn't end, which is why it would be eternal. We participate with the divine life eternally, and those who choose not to will choose not to. We're not perfectly logical creatures. And so 
uh, even in terms of, of, uh, of the separation between, let's say, the redeemed and the damned or something like that, if you wanted to think of it that way, um, it's not necessarily like um, I'm talking about just logical categories or how uh, evil is defined ontologically. When, when, when I'm speaking about those things, I'm talking, I'm talking specifically about the way that these reflect themselves, these things reflect themselves, even in the biblical narratives about, uh, uh, suffering or evil. Like, let's take, like to take, for example, uh, the, the story of Job, right? Job experienced a great suffering and a great loss, right? But in the end, it was redeemed in what was given to him or granted to him. It doesn't mean that his children came back. They weren't resurrected, but there was a greater purpose that God had in allowing those things to occur. And in the narrative, it was redeemed and even granted a greater good to him. Um, whereas there was still the loss. The loss doesn't stop happening, right? Like the loss still occurs and the loss is real, but the loss is redeemed because it's brought up into something higher. He continued to participate in a relationship with God and didn't forsake God. And therefore God brought him up. Um, whereas if he re had rejected God in his low place, he would have sunk into something more like a tragedy, narratively speaking, where it wasn't a redeemed story. It wasn't that U-shaped story where he would fall into, into the underbelly and then come back up, right? Instead, he would have fallen down and then just stayed there in his rejection. Uh, and that would have been a tragedy, right? But it was redeemed because he stayed in relation with God. He didn't curse God and die as his wife uh, uh, recommended. Instead, he he stayed in he stayed in allegiance with God, and through that allegiance, God blessed him, and he received something greater in the end. It brought him right back out. So I'm talking about specifically something like a narrative arc or a story. Um, and so you guys are all familiar with things that are very much more in the level of abstraction and you're talking about logical categories and, and doing all this assortment. And so I can see why it would be difficult to map this onto what you guys are talking about. Um, so I think that that's probably where a lot of the, the, the confusion might be living is that I'm not necessarily talking about logical categories. I'm talking about um, narrative or symbolic or, or uh, stories, right? Like these, um, that, that's what, that's what we live in. That's what we experience as human beings. I don't know if you've read it. Uh, John Schneider has a really interesting, um, something kind of similar, uh, maybe uh, on, on his book, uh, The Darwinian Problem of Evil. And it's uh, he has this idea that um, it, it's kind of like aesthetics, that God being a non-human uh, artist, because, you know, if it's a human artist, you know, there's the objection. Well, the end, you know, you can't say that bringing about evil is like an ends justify the means type of objection. But he leaves it open that perhaps God as a non-human artist is sort of weaving together this uh, like a beautifully tragic kind of art form uh, that accumulates in the, the defeat of evil. Is, is like that a tapestry? So, sort of. It, that it, it's like it's like a tragic art, like tra uh, tragic art expression uh, that yeah. God is permissible in doing as a non-human type artist. Is, is that kind of where you're going with it? Um. Sort of. I mean, it, the image is, is appropriate. I would say that if you're thinking about uh, the course of all reality as um, a series of individual threads that find their self within something larger, like I said, that my story is nested in uh, something larger than myself. Otherwise, it's a finite story, right? If I was an atheist right. that rejected God, my story would be a finite story. It would come to an end. 
But because oh. I'm, I'm affirming a theistic framework, I can nest that story in something much larger than myself. And I can find, uh, uh, I can find a, a, a meaning that's, that's greater than the most immediate uh, basis of my experience, right? And so I can, I can guide my judgments not based on my immediate desire or my passions, but I can mm -hmm. curb those passions by concentrating on something that's greater than my immediate experience. And then I can make my decisions based on that. And what I would say is, is ultimately like, you can think about it this way. Um, I'm an individual and in myself, I have many components, many parts. I have desires and passions and drives and whatever, right? All of those individual components find their unity in me, right? And in the same sense, I have a family, right? And I participate in that family and the family together has something that unifies it. You can call that like the spirit of its own unity, right? And then beyond that, you have something like my neighborhood or my community that has something that it unifies around. There's in, it's, it's, it's the idea of finding unity in a, a, a fragmented world of multiplicity. And the only reason we can perceive of those things is because we actually do see things that, that way intuitively. Like if I look at um, uh, my computer sitting in front of me. It's made of a bunch of individual parts of which I have no idea mostly how it works. Uh, it only becomes a computer when it ceases to work. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of keys and a screen. And that's what I'm interacting with. That's what I'm participating with, right? And so it, it, in, in that way, I'm talking about my participation in reality, my experience, my cognition, the way that I form my ideas and those kind of things, my, like I plan for the future and interact with it. Those are the things that I'm talking about. I'm not necessarily talking about um, uh, the, the, the more logical problems like you guys are talking about. I think that's why, like I said, I think that's why it's having a difficulty mapping on because um, you, you guys are all working with things that are a lot more, uh, um, let's say abstract in a, in a higher level of, of thought than something that's your immediate sense data and your consciousness interacting with reality at any given moment. Yeah, um, th that makes sense. Um, I think I I'd probably need to look into it further to really give, <laughs> give a good... If, uh... if, if I can recommend uh, a couple of things, um, there's a channel called The Symbolic World with uh, Jonathan Peugeot. He's a really interesting and intuitive guy. Does a lot of work on, on exactly this, narrative structure, symbolism, uh, imagery, iconography, um, things like that, uh, where, where we're talking about, um, you know, narrative patterns that go throughout scripture that also map onto reality. Um, like we live in those narrative patterns, right? Like Moses, Moses is a great example of what we're going to be talking about tomorrow in the show We talk about a, a, a cycle or a pattern of death and resurrection as symbolized by certain, certain components in the story of the Exodus, right? They're in Egypt. Egypt represents the world. It can also represent sin, uh, that thing that is a tyranny that keeps you enslaved, right? And you can see imagistically how those things would map onto each other. It's not necessarily a logical problem. It's a narrative or imagistic one. And you can think about it logically, but it's not fitting in these categories of like strict philosophy, right? But it incorporates a lot of that stuff. So it's it, there's a lot of overlap, but it's not necessarily um, the same thing. Guys, that's <laughs> that was a very interesting one, man. Um, Dr. McLachey, is there anything else you wanted to add to that or or say in response? No, uh, um, 
philosophies, um, problem of evil, moral philosophy is not my primary wheelhouse. I'm yeah. more into <laughs> scholarship and scientific evidence for God. So I don't yeah. really have much to add on that particular discussion. Right on. You, you know, one um, of the things that, that I was really interested in, guys, I, I love the conversation. I, I wonder if there is a way to map that on there, Josh. Uh, I think, Dale, you can, you can also... I, and I don't speak too much. I don't get in when I'm hosting. It's all about you guys. You know, I love to make it all about my guests and stuff like that. But uh, me and Dale have been talking about the Odyssey and I've been like bringing a, a little bit of this to the to the whole area. And uh, I wonder, Dale, do you think there's a way to marry some of this into what we've been talking about? Um. So I'll, I'll be honest, I, I've been a bit distracted uh, in the oh, center. <laughs> You sinner, you sinner. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, um, yeah, me and you have been kind of talking about that. So, so obviously, I do think that you have to, whatever your answer to the problem of evil is, it has to be biblically consistent. Um, you can't have something that contradicts scripture. Um, I have no idea if that that answers your question. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. But but I get what you're saying. And what I would always say is, uh, uh, and I bet to back you up a little bit, you, you know, I think we've ignored the theology too long when it comes to the problem of evil. We we've stuck to the philosophy a little too long, and I think that you can't separate the two. I don't think it can be possible. Uh, once, um, go ahead. What one thing? The one thing I will add actually on the problem of evil is so. I, from my perspective, I, I would grant that the problem of evil is some evidence against the existence of God. Um, obviously, I, as a Christian, I think that it's counterbalanced by sufficient evidence on the other side of the balance, which um, tips the scale significantly in favor of theism and de Christianity more particularly. Um, I think that it's very easy for people to sometimes overestimate the potency of the problem of evil because people are often very impressed by the sheer number of cases that we have of apparently gratuitous suffering in the world. And one thing that often gets overlooked is that um, instances of evil in the world are not epistemically independent. They are epistemically dependent. If God has a moral sufficient justification for permitting one instance of suffering or evil in the world, he may well have a similar moral sufficient justification for permitting a second one and a third one. So forth. you have a problem of diminishing returns by multiplying examples, uh, where with each successive example, that you add to your case, the evidential value depreciates yeah. um, over time with each successive example that you add. And one other point I'll make there is that um, is, is what um, Tim McGrew, a philosopher at Western Michigan University, calls the problem of evidential entanglement, which is that the problem of evil and, and suffering presupposes that you have a conscious objective experience. You cannot suffer and you cannot perpetrate evil without conscious objective experience. And Conscious objective experience, of course, has as its preconditions numerous um, elements which have been traditionally used as, as points of leverage in making arguments for theism, such as um, you need a, a universe that's <clears throat> governed by physical laws like gravity, it needs to be finely tuned universe, you've got to have the orders of life, the orders of molecular machinery, <clears throat> and cell division, and multicellularity, and, and so forth, uh, and complex brains, and consciousness emerging from that now that's enormously improbable on atheism or, or not on naturalism and thus the problem of evil actually is quite improbable whether you're a theist or a naturalist and uh i and i think that 
you, you cannot, this, this is why it's called evidential entanglement. You cannot divorce or untangle the problem of evil from the positive case for theism. And I, I think that um, when you have these two competing cumulative cases, the cumulative case from evil for atheism versus the cumulative case from you know cosmological argument, the fine-tuning argument, biological design, and so forth, um, for theism, I'm inclined to favor the latter because you have not only extensive evidence for theism, but it also varies in kind. We're not just giving lots of different examples of the same thing. We're giving diverse examples that span multiple disciplines. You have multiple categories of evidence, which all convergently point in the direction of theism. And, and if a certain evidential threshold is satisfied that um, in support of theism, that provides an, ind that, an indirect basis for thinking that God has some morally sufficient justification for permitting evil in the world, uh, even if that currently eludes us and we don't know what that explanation is. Um, any thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, so um, I, I was kind of in, in your same position, uh, Dr. McClatchy, uh, that uh, I, I would look at it as sort of a cumulative case that, you know, uh, and I would say that given natural theology, um, that the problem of the, the, the scale is obviously tipped in favor of theism, even with uh, certain issues of the problem of evil going through. So yeah, I, I, I was totally where you're at. Um, however, I will say that uh, reading John Schneider's and most recently Trent Doherty's book on the uh, St. Fostering Theodicy, I've come to um, the conclusion that uh, evil is uh, actually the amount, frequency, and distributions uh, we have. In fact, this is what I'm going to be arguing tomorrow, is actually more probable and predicted under theism so my, my views have recently shifted after kind of going through their works and looking at this issue of uh the defeat condition and to kind of come back to what david was saying what's very interesting is it's very easy to square this type of uh you know theodicy and a, a defeat condition with a canonical theism like christianity and I, I know you'll have people like draper who will say well it's making more immodest claims and uh but it's not an auxiliary hypothesis and I, I would go with Swinburne's view of simplicity that it's a matter of what we posit initially and then everything else it's an entailment from that so I, I don't think we're making immodest claims and so uh yeah 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 I uh, you know I would come behind that uh Dr. Malachi you know I'm working on a theodicy myself uh that goes beyond what I've been learning and stuff like that you know I'm trying to add to but I've some of the papers I've had in my master's program uh, and, and try to even delve deeper. Actually, Dale gave me a, a, a nice bibliography of 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 uh, of uh, the problem of evil, uh, you know, works and stuff like that. So, you know, I, I'm really looking into it more because I do agree with what you said. I, I really do. And I think that there's a lot more to it. And I do think it's multi layered. And there's a, a cumulative factor to it. But I also think uh, what I was saying about the Odyssey, I, I was basically our uh, theology not being able to separate that from from anything. I, it would go back to pretty much what you said. Uh, just, yeah, I, I think you said it pretty elegantly. So uh, all in all, but yeah, uh, Caleb, did, did you want to add anything? I mean, I, I, I think Dr. McLaxley said it pretty good. And I think Travis... 
added to it really well as well. I would uh, agree with both of them on the entanglement. I see that Dale has a question on that. I also had a random, well, not random. I had a question for Jonathan, but it was way back when talking about you, uh, undesigned coincidences. So I don't know if you want me to wait till after we <laughs> live streaming. Says so not off topic, but I, in short, I do agree with what uh, was said about entanglement. I think that even though I don't think evil proves God in that sense, I think it is true that in order to have suffering, you have to have conscious agents and that conscious agents are far more probable under theism than naturalism. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Dale. Yeah. Just a very quick question. So like, I, I know we've been kind of talking about like cumulative cases and we have to consider all the evidential factors and that sort of thing. And that kind of brings up, uh, something that I'll be presenting about in the context of the evil God challenge that some atheists employ this thing called the bracketing move where they say, no, we don't have to consider evidential considerate all the evidential considerations, only certain ones matter. So I'm, I'm kind of taking it out of context and just wondering, like, have you encountered anyone who who's used a bracketing move in, in this context in terms of ruling out certain types of evidence and stuff? Who are you asking that for? Oh, oh, for Jonathan, for for anyone, but Jonathan first, I guess. I'll give you to Jonathan. Muted, yeah. Sorry, can you ask the question again? Um, so, so some atheists employ this thing called the bracketing move. So they'll they'll say like you don't have to consider certain types. Oh, right. of yeah. Uh, so I just wanted your your take on that. Yeah. Um, so. Um, uh, yeah, Paul Draper, for example, takes this perspective where, so I, th I think what you're getting at is, so given that, so, so yeah, so they'll grant that consciousness is evidence for theism. It's more probable on theism than atheism, but given consciousness, the problem of evil is much less probable on theism than it would be on, on naturalism. Is that where you're going with that? Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I would agree with that. Uh, and so that's why I'm prepared to say that um, the problem of evil is evidence that tends to confirm naturalism is more probable on naturalism than it is on theism, given that you already have consciousness. Nonetheless, it does emphasize and highlight that there is consciousness in the world and that, that is much more probable given theism than naturalism. You cannot have evil unless there is significant evidence already in the world for theism so yeah we do have to address and tackle the problem of evil it's not a get out of jail free card but it's just to point out that it should draw our attention to the fact that there is um tremendous evidence in the world for theism from uh the existence of conscious agency does that answer your question yeah Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. You know, it, it's really, I don't want to give too much away, especially with what I'm writing and stuff and what, uh, what I've been like taking notes on. So uh, I'm going to leave it there. We've discussed pretty much everything that we talked about, uh, except for we didn't give uh, the entirety of Jonathan's argument away for the debate tomorrow. And that's a good thing, you know? So <laughs> Oh, we didn't ask him. To, we didn't probe in to see what he was, you know, any part of his opening statement or anything like that. So I'm happy about that. But again, Dr. McClatchy, it is such a pleasure to talk to you, man. Like I said, I've been a fan, uh, you know, for a long time, man, since the unbelievable days, like early on, man. I, I like I said, I started listening back in 2007. Uh, and 
they had just it, it was it was almost in the conception days you know i talked to justin not too long ago on this show or not on this show but on the uh, on my previous show and man we just we reminisced for a while and it was just like wow you know it's <laughs> it's been a long time you know i'm 40 now man so uh i don't know where you're at on that spectrum but yeah man we've been doing, i've been doing this a long time so i've been i've been you know uh you know, watching watching your ministries and 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 stuff grow. Uh, seeing you come from the UK to America, uh, I heard it was over a woman. So uh, I'm not going to say any more than. <laughs> well, no, I actually my my wife's from Austria, so oh, we're both really? here on, on visas. Yeah. Oh wow! Well, you know, you know, I, I heard the ambulance or whatever was going by, and I was like, "That's got to be Massachusetts." <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm from Virginia. I'm a little further south. I'm actually 60 miles south from the nation's capital. So, uh, you know, but yeah, you know, it's like I said, it's an honor, man. You know, uh, it's an honor to actually get to talk to you. Been, you know, following you for a long time. Uh, uh, Caleb, uh, you know, thanks for, for, for you and Travis just like jumping on board when we started talking about Faith Unaltered and, and uh, how we want to like expand this ministry and like really – get this out to people, man, you know, and, and really like help solve the problems with biblical literacy, people not thinking deeply and stuff like that. So I appreciate it, man. And, uh, I know Tyler had to run out and Josh ran out and, you know, everybody had to run out, but, uh, Dale again, thank you as well. Um, for, for just, you know, backing me up all the time, man. And, you know, helping me out and, you know, stuff like that. But, uh, again, guys, you know, this is what it's about, man. We exist uh, to to like uh, Jonathan does mentors people with doubts, man. I mean, we we try to do that. We want to help people. That's why we're here. You know, at the end of the day, they have to make their own decisions. But if we can try to show them the door, I mean, praise God. You know that that's what we got to do. You know that's that's what we're called to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. So, guys, again, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna close this out. And I can't wait to see you, see you guys tomorrow. It's already 10 o'clock for us on the West Coast or the East Coast. <laughs> West Coast. Uh, East Coast. So, um, yeah. Um, good night and God bless. Good night. Thanks, David. Yep. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.